after two weeks of being out and serving uh, in different churches and different contexts, and I just want to add my voice to all the people that were involved in all the holiday clubs, a brilliant way of seeing the community serve and people stretch beyond. My teenage daughter uh, is in grade eight, and it was the first time, and a real moment for me as a parent, watching my grade eight daughter kind of take the baton of being involved in holiday clubs and that kind of thing. I remembered about the same age starting to be a volunteer on Scripture Union holiday clubs and doing that for many years. And to kind of see my daughter involved and up here on stage, it was a a real moment uh, for me to watch that. But really, I was so proud of this community. A number of my uh, sons, friends, not churched people normally coming along, coming to see what their kids were up to for the week and a real great opportunity for this city, uh, for this church to serve the city. So thank you again to everyone who was involved. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be in in the 11th kind of installment of working through the book of James. So if you're newer to our context, then welcome. We've been working through this book for many weeks now, 10, this is the 11th. And what we're doing is as we come to the word, we really are trusting that the word of God will do the work of God as we get to it. And so it kind of just working through it systematically through this book of James, and we're hoping that this word is gonna wash over us and that God's gonna achieve something of his purpose in us as we really do the deep work of allowing his word to kind of work in us, hopefully in a way that causes us to freshly kind of assess our lives and open our lives to the fullness of God's truth. And, and one of the big things about James is that James is really kind of going, hey, this is what you're proclaiming. Well, then you need to assess how your life is living up to that which you proclaim, this gospel that you proclaim. And in many ways, James is a hard-hitting book, right? But we're not trying to shy away from that. We're trying to allow that to be God's word, which it is, his revealed words to our lives. And we're inviting God to, by his spirit, achieve his purpose in us. I would personally love to say that, yay, tonight James turns a corner and he just gives us all a hug and tells us we're all fantastic. But that's not what he does, right? You just heard, you just heard Kyle read the text. And and Josh, the last two Sundays has has been doing some heavy lifting with regards to the, the complexity and the kind of pack of a punch that this text does. And tonight is not very different but I do believe it is still very important. And so I want us to open our, our hearts to what God would wanna achieve. And, and, and it really is in summary about faith without works being dead. As Carl kind of said, the, the heading of the passage is just that. And if I was to title the sermon, I would title it this, a faith that works, a faith that works. It's almost kind of like saying, hey, if your faith is like this and nothing else kind of comes beyond the census tick box of Christian, then, then it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. And I love the way that James jumps in. He kind of starts by saying this, what good is it? What good is it? Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Like I said just now, I've got a teenage daughter, right? Sometimes when I walk into my kids' rooms and I go, this laundry basket, what good is it? 
this lovely towel hook on the back of your door. What good is it? At our front door, behind the front door, there's this big shoe basket, and I look at that shoe basket and I go, what good is it? There's shoes everywhere but in the shoe basket, right? It's kind of like any person who knows, there's a laundry basket, what happens with that? Well, theoretically, laundry goes in it, right? And a, and a towel hook, theoretically, that's where the towel goes. And yet when that's not happening, it's not too hard for us to go, broken, that's not how it works, that shouldn't work like that. And likewise, James is kind of going, man, assess your faith, and as you assess your faith, Either it should look, faith, look like faith that's leading naturally, overflowing naturally to works, or if it's not, James is calling it broken. What good is it? What good is a, a faith that has no works? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Don't you all want to have much more than a tick box, kind of Christian tick box in the census kind of faith. See, I think James, he doesn't ex kind of explain this explicitly, but I think James would kind of encourage us, as, we, as I've worked this through now over the last many days and really looked at it, I think James would, in a sense, as we come to the text, want us to have one of three kind of observations. Observation number one, as we go through the text, you find yourself kind of going, hey, I'm not sure this is exactly for me. I'm so glad that this is what this scripture speaks about. But I think if I'm honest, I have a faith and I see that faith naturally outworking itself in numerous areas. And this is great. This is a great reminder for me to keep going. Yay. Option one, maybe that's you, right? Option two is the kick in the pants option, right? And it's kind of as you're assessing your faith, you're kind of going, oh, maybe there's been times where my faith has naturally overflown into participating with God's work and, and God's works working through me. But to be honest, I think I'm more in that 1 Thessalonians 5 category of most probably being a bit idle, sitting on my hands. And most probably, if I'm honest, I've become a little bit lukewarm in areas of my faith. And, and I need to choose the kick in the pants option, 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 because James is speaking to me. And he's saying, what good is it? What good is this faith you proclaim? And there might be a third option. And maybe this is you. The third option is this. As you kind of assess the reality and you hear us speaking about what James is saying, he's saying, man, if you've got faith and it's not naturally leading to these things, something's broken and you, as you may assess it, may go, I'm not sure I've ever had the genuine artifact of spiritual faith. I'm not sure I've really taken hold of it in the kind of ways that G James seems to infer here. And I think that's a legitimate option, option three. And the invitation for us is to, to, to assess where we're at. That's part of what James is calling us here to tonight. Helpfully, James goes on to unpack this and give us a few examples of what he believes the outworking of genuine faith looks like. And he kind of does some, some observation by contrast, right? He gives us some examples of what it doesn't look like and then he gives us some helpful examples from the Old Testament of a few people, Abraham and Rahab, who really lived out their faith in a very practical and real way. 
So let's start with the negative examples here, verse 15. The first kind of negative story that, that James tells about what real faith doesn't look like is lip service, right? What real faith doesn't look like is lip service. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He's kind of going broken, right? Broken. These are Christians of being spoken of here, and this is their kind of, their needs, their most basic needs, their daily food is what it refers to here. And James is saying that just kind of blessing them conceptually, well, that, that's not good enough. That, that's not enough. It's a pointless activity when a person is hungry and cold to say, bless you, be warm. James is saying it's broken. Just call it like it is. It's broken. And he's saying, what good is that? We all know this to be true, right? When a person's words kind of sound nice to us, but they're not followed up by actions, eventually you're kind of going, actually, I get the picture. And sometimes when a person's words sound nice, but it's not followed up by action, you actually have a kind of a, a deeper level repulsion that happens. I'm not sure if you've experienced that. Hey, we must really do dinner sometime. Hey, we must really hang out. It never gets backed up, and eventually, what do, you, what do you start saying? Yeah, yeah, I know you don't mean that. And actually, what's happening is, is kind of just the verbalization of these things with no follow-through is kind of like, no, man, that's not right. It's broken, and James is saying, it's broken. In a sense, what, I, what I'm actually saying is my, my, my actions are speaking louder than my words, and that's part of James's point. Psalm, Sam Albury, Sam Albury, Sam Albury, he writes a, a, a commentary on this, James for you, and he speaks of this person as the armchair philanthropist. The armchair philanthropist, a person who sits back in the comfort of their own home or safe place and just blesses everyone figuratively, but doesn't ever actually get up or disrupt their schedule or rustle their wallets or their plans to serve or help anyone else practically. How many of us have ever, ever been an armchair philanthropist? I have. I've done it, right? Me and Inga, just the two of us. She, she was willing and brave enough to put up her hand. It's true, and James is saying, no, not so you, with you, Christ follower. Not so with you. Make sure that if, if this is what you're professing, then this is what you are living out. Not lip service to your faith, right? I think, unfortunately, the reality is today, social media has given us a whole new world of opportunity to be armchair philanthropists. Just a little quick like, like, share, share, and now I feel like I've done my good deed for the day. Look at me. Bless you. Bless you, worlds. I'm such an activist. And actually, no, it's lip service. Our lives are not actually following that up. Our dining room tables are not following that up. Our generosity is not following that up. It's lip service. And James is saying, not good Christ follower. In a sense, this whole virtue signaling dynamic is a whole new digital form of hypocrisy. And we've got to call it out in our lives. James is pointing out the falseness of this because faith goes beyond lip service. True faith. 
overflows into action. If I, let me tell you, you guys, are, many of you are in that realm of trying to assess the situation with regards to who you're gonna spend the rest of your life with. Let me tell you, when I was in that kind of season of life, and I kind of said, hey, let's do Nana. There was no not following up, right? There was no kind of like, hey, let's do dinner, and three months later, I maybe give it some more thought. No, it's continually happening in your mind. Oh, I wonder. I wonder what they're doing now. It's, it's, if it's real, if it's, if it's a genuine heart issue, it overflows into your thinking and your action and your activity all the time, right? That's what James is saying. It's way beyond just simple words, bless you. Then comes the second negative example to show what real faith doesn't look like. And he says, when we try and divide faith and works, that's not what real faith looks like. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. See, James is imagining, this is a letter, so it's not actually a dialogue, but he's imagining someone's pushing back on him and kind of going, no, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Like someone kind of going, hey, I'm more like a faithy type. And I'm sure some in the room will go, yeah, yeah, that's me, I'm more faithy type. And others will go, no, 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 I'm more like a, a practical worksy type. And in Christianity, we've actually got names for these people, Mary and Martha, right? And we run around kind of life groups finishing. Oh, guys, come on, leave those dishes. Stop being such Marthas. And what do we mean? We're referring to that story about the, the, the lady sitting, uh, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, wanting to be with him, wanting to learn from him. And Martha just kind of busying herself with all the activity. And we kind of like, oh, we got Marys and Marthas. And, 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 and we kind of two different types of people. The reality is James is going, no. That, that's not good. If James was here, he would say, don't overplay this whole Mary-Martha thing. The reality is we have Mary and Martha tendencies in all of us at different times. And God's going, no, no, you can't separate out faith and some people are kind of faith people and works and some people are works people. No, 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 the truth is that actually all of us should have a deep faith which leads to life-giving works being lived out through our lives. James isn't buying it, right? In John 14, Jesus says these words. Verse 15, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Love, see, it naturally leads to obedience. It's not the other way around. Obedience doesn't naturally kind of overflow into love. But Jesus says, if you love me, if that's the deep thing that's happening in here, then you'll naturally find yourself overflowing into the obedience of the things that he has called us to. Likewise, faith naturally overflows to works. Works kind of just on their own doesn't lead to faith, but there's this beautiful overlap between faith and works in the reality of the Christian life. James actually outright challenges the people who are listening, and he challenges them to show him. He says in the next verse, show me your faith apart from your works. And that's a test that still stands today. Who would like to come forward, stand on the stage, and show us their faith? Anybody? Josh, you, you seem pretty keen. You want to come? You want to try? 
The reality is the only way that we can evidence our faith is through some kind of works. Either the works of our words or the works of our actions or, or pointing to some activity. The reality is that faith overflows always. I've loved my parents. My parents have been Christ followers for a very long time. A great privilege to grow up in, in, a, in a home where both of your parents love Jesus. And I've watched their lives. And recently during lockdown, my mom used to pack shelves at Walmart when she was in the States, right? We used to call her a night stalker. So pretty much she's kind of semi-retired, but she'd cruise in there at nighttime and she'd go put like packing shelves at the nighttime. And, and that's where you get the night stacker, but it's actually, we call it a night stalker. You see what I did there? Anyway, the points being, my mom gets to know this other lady from, from Walmart and they become really good friends. They live in the States, they did at the time. Then my parents moved back to South Africa and they're back here. And during lockdown, this lady goes through the devastation of her husband walking out on her. She's not a Christ follower. Her husband just ups and leaves in the middle of, of lockdown. And her heart's broken. And who does she reach out to in the whole wide world but my mom? And she starts connecting with my mom and saying, oh, this is so devastating. And my mom just kind of meets with her regularly over the phone and Zoom and things like that and starts praying with her, saying, can I pray for you? Then eventually she actually gets to a place where she crosses the line of faith. And in about that time, my dad, who's a bit more of like a teacher dude, he kind of takes over and he starts meeting with her, sometimes four, five times a week, discipling her, sometimes for an hour or two at a time on the phone, just talking things through. It's, it's hard lockdown, right? The, those first few months of hard lockdown. And she gets discipled in her faith. And I remembered my dad sharing, because his caravan was parked on my front lawn for a couple of months. He comes into the house and he goes, Ryan, you won't believe what's happened with, with this lady. And it was really cool. She actually joined us online for a couple of months at Common Ground because we were the only Christians in the whole world that she knew. And so we were all at Common Ground, so she joined us online. And my dad says, the most amazing things started happening without me trying to tell her, this is what she must do, this is what she must do. Because her faith is so real, her faith is just bearing fruit. And she asked me today, what does it mean to tell other people about Jesus? How do I do that? I feel like this is such good stuff, I can't keep it to myself. My dad's like, yo, that's cool. And then the, uh, shortly after that, he says, Ryan, you can't believe it. She's asking all these fantastic questions. She asked me today, what do we do about all the poor people in the world? I wanna do more for the poor. And she said, what does it mean to be Christian with my money? And then she started asking, what does it mean to find a church close to me? How do I know if it's a good church or not? These are all the evidences of true faith. Nobody has to teach you these things. When faith is real and you've received the truth of the gospel, it just naturally outworks itself in your life. Do you see that? That's what James is saying here. Guys, it's, it, can, it can't be lip service. If you kind of feel like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but none of this stuff ever happens in your life. Maybe you've got to assess whether you're in category three. Have you ever taken hold of the real deal? It's not trying to be judgy. It's really trying to hope for the very best for you. Hear the heart of love tonight where this is coming from. But in her, li in her life, it just so naturally was evidenced. I've lost my place in my points. Let's go. Okay. Real faith isn't lip service. 
Real faith isn't trying to separate out faith from works. Faith naturally overflows into works, as we've just seen in her story. But now, James gets to some positive examples, right? So he's gonna speak about Abraham and Rahab. But before he gets there, verse 19 is most probably the pivotal sentence in this whole thing. It's very insightful. And so we're gonna park here for a moment. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. Remember, he's not speaking to non-Christian people. He is speaking to Christian people here. Jews that have become Christians, they now Messianic Jews, they've, they've followed Jesus for some time, they've been dispersed because of persecution and they, they kind of threw out the, I think it's ancient Near East is the right thing. Techie cat, can you help me? Is that right? Ancient Near East? Sounds good, right? Cool. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is, he's not holding back, right? He's actually saying a bit sarcastically, don't congratulate yourself thinking you say, yes, God is, God is, is one and feel like, yes, I've got the right answer. I, I've got it all together. He says, no, even the demons believe that. Sam Albury restates this powerfully in his commentary on this when he says, there are no atheists in the demonic realm. They're no atheists, and even the demons believe, right? But guess what? They are not unaffected by their belief. They shudder. They shudder. They know truth. And Sam Albury actually goes, he thinks most demons are orthodox. Anyway, we won't get into the, we won't get into the fullness of that. But what, what is the important part here? You believe God is one. Most of us, as we hear that kind of more uh, Western or African ears here today, we have no Judeo kind of perspective on that, those three words, God is one. And so we miss out on a whole bunch of the meaning of what is meant by God is one. See, this God is one is part of the prayers that the Jews would have prayed morning and evening. And I want us to watch a quick video about this, this important statement because as James says, you believe God is one. In other words, you kind of saying yes to all that. Don't forget the fullness of what you're saying yes to when you say God is one. Let's watch this quick video just to help us grasp it. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now the first word of the Shema is hear or listen, which in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. That's where the prayer gets its name. Now Shema is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible and it's obvious why. Hearing is a very universal activity. It's usually connected with the ear, as in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that Shema and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Now that seems basic enough, but if you look at the other ways that Hebrew authors can use the word Shema, they use it to mean more than just let sound waves enter your ear. In Hebrew, Shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Leah, who wasn't loved by her husband Jacob, she has a son and she names him Simon, or in Hebrew, Shimon, because she says, the Lord has Shamad, that I am unloved. 
So Shema means to hear and to pay attention to and even more. It can also mean responding to what you hear. This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begin with a call that God listen. Psalm 27 verse 7, Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful, answer me. So asking God to Shema is at the same time asking God to act, to do something. It's similar to when God asks people to listen. Like when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God says, if you Shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word Shema is repeated twice in this sentence to give it emphasis. If you Shema Shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to Shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. And that's the last fascinating thing about Shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word Shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action, and that's the Hebrew word Shema. Hello? There we go. I find that so incredibly helpful, that, that listening and responding or obeying would have been seen as the same thing. And also, as they, as they hear this, the, that God is one, they wouldn't have just thought, oh, God is one kind of cerebral agreements or some kind of mentalist assent to the, the, the dynamic of, yes, now I've seen it. They would have in that moment set, heard with that, that there is a call to love him with all of your heart and your soul and your strength. He's saying, no, no, the demons don't do that, Right? So yeah, they can kind of agree to the theory, but the difference is faith overflows into works and what sets you apart from the demons is not that you give mental agreement to this, but that you follow with your whole heart, soul, and mind. Heart, soul, and strength, sorry. Make sense? There's a lot more to this and, and James is, is, is really calling them into the fullness of this. And now he turns to some positive examples. He's a little bit cross with them. He coarsely tees up his positive examples like this. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What use is it? Maybe he's frustrated. Maybe he's just doubling down out of care and love for them. You foolish person seems to imply the former, right? But his first example is this, Abraham. Now, firstly, what we gotta recognize is Abraham is like Messi to soccer or Federer to tennis, right? If you want to, amongst the people of God, appeal to the, the greatest example, you appeal to Father Abraham. And so what he does is he appeals to Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
Here's this great patriarch who finds himself in a place of being childless and then God gives him a son and then God says, I want you to offer me your son. And he's willing, we, great big questions all around here, right? How does this work in the economy of God? What's in his heart? Why is he making him do this? And we, we know at the end of the story, actually God provides a ram. It is the sacrifice and it's all this prophetic picture of the, the one day sacrifice of Jesus that's to come to be the substitute, to stand in our parts. And, and his son does die. And so it's this great prophetic picture. But, but here, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he was willing to offer up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, his faith, listen to this part, was active along with his works. It's like a bicycle. Faith and works are active together. Two pedals that are busy pedaling together and they create a, a momentum going forward. And faith was completed by his work. And I think I was hungry when I came up with this analogy, but it, it's like a cake, right? When you get to a cake, what do you see? Just the icing, but the icing, we know because of the structure and form of this icing, that's kind of the pretty packaging. The, subs, the substance to it is still the cake. Much in the same way, our faith is the substance to it, but our works are the outworking in a sense, or the, the external evidence of that substance is our outworking. Faith was completed by Abraham's work and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Don't you love that? Faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And James is kind of saying, man, if your faith is not active along with your works or if your faith is not being completed by your works, what use is it? What use is it? It's a genuine, positive example of Abraham's faith and belief calling him into action, being willing to take big faith steps practically because of the substance of his faith overflowing into his life. James caps off this point very directly. He says, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What is he saying there? I know we've touched on this before, and in a sense, this is really the crux of where kind of it seems like James's writing and, and Paul's writings contradict each other in the scriptures when actually they don't. They don't, but it sounds like it, right? Let's put these two verses up here, that verse we've just read. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Romans 3 verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Sounds like the opposite thing is being said there, right? And we don't have today time for a full kind of word study on this, but I think works at the top and works of the law, two very different things. Two very different things. And, he, and he's kind of going, man, Abraham, Abraham couldn't have gone, yes, God, I trust you, and then not been obedient, See, Abram had to evidence that trust with a willingness to partake in the will and activity of God to evidence his faith. And when we see there, one being justified by faith apart from works of the law, that's talking about a whole kind of works righteousness, which is a different kind of thing where the people historically would have believed that they would have been saved by keeping the law. 
And we can't be saved by keeping the law. See, what James is calling us to do is he's calling us to evidence our faith. He's even calling us to inspect our faith. But James never calls us to, to sorry, He's calling us to, to evidence our faith with works. He's calling to inspect the works of our faith. He's never calling us to, with works, earn, earn our salvation or our justification. Make sense? It's a, it's, an, it's a very core doctrine to the people of God. Remember, we have to remember that Jesus said those words, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's out of love our kind of followership happens. Remember, we're Protestant people. What does that mean? It means that we, we participate in the kind of main tenets of the Protestant uh, Reformation, which happened a few hundred years ago. Let's put up those solas. And, and five kind of tenets of the Protestant Reformation, the five solas, alone. Sola means alone, right? Scripture is the foundation of all we believe. Scripture alone. But scripture alone helps us to understand that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved, what ultimately for his glory alone. That's what the five solas are about, right? You can say them in the original language, I can't. But great Christ alone through faith alone, by grace alone, that is the primary thing that we believe as Christ followers today. There's nothing that can add to the finished work of Christ. He said, it is done. Romans uh, chapter one says, the gospel is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Let's look at the second positive example of faith here expressed in the works of Rahab. Verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. If you haven't read the story of Rahab, go and read Joshua chapter two. The two spies come into Jericho. They're gonna check out the land. They're coming before before God's people kind of move in to just kind of spy things out. And one of my big questions about Joshua chapter two is what were they doing at the brothel? Why were they staying at the brothel? The scriptures never really answered that question, right? But they're staying at this brothel. And, And guess what? If they were up to nonsense, God has a way of finding them out because the whole of Israel is soon gonna find out that that's where they were staying because that's the only place that gets saved when everything else gets destroyed. But what's powerful about this, if you go and read the story in Joshua chapter two, what you see is you see this lady Rahab going, yep, it's clear that you serve the living God. And she announces a whole bunch of things with her words But she doesn't just announce these things with her words. She then puts her very own life at risk and on the line to save these two spies. And it's clear that not just did she have faith, but she evidenced that faith with her words and with her actions. And here she is, one of the the heroes of the New Testaments. This is another positive example, right? One of my favorites from the New Testament, positive example of faith being worked out is Jesus is busy speaking in a house and these four friends, they they literally, it says, tear the roof open to lower their friends to Jesus. And if I was preaching, I'm not sure if someone started coming through the roof and just kind of lowering someone in here, my first words would be what Jesus' first words were. But the scripture says, 
and Jesus seeing their faith. Did they say anything? No, they just tore a hole in a roof and they brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus and Jesus responds to the actions of their life. Jesus seeing their faith, he responds to them. Sam Aubrey, as we close, says this. Real faith is not merely sentimental, wishing someone well while doing nothing to help them. It is not merely creedal, affirming something to be true, but which makes no difference to the way that we live. Such things may be something, but they are not Christianity. This ties nicely into the last and final verse of the chapter. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What good is it, James asks. What good is it? I think James has made his point in this section of the text, and I hope the spirit has made his point in our lives here tonight. I trust that we understand that this is not a message that comes heavy to be laid upon us, but it comes as an invitation to welcome us into the much mores that Jesus would have for us. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the fullness. He said, it's for freedom that I have set you free. And what James is saying here is, there are so many of us who are living in so much less than the fullness of what God has for us and he's giving us a kick up the pants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just wanna come back, Lord, to, to where you know different people in this room are here this evening. And I wanna ask God, if those who just need a, a high five and an encouragement, a well done in their walk with you that's, that's evidencing real faith and overflowing into works that please you and honor you, God, we pray that they would sense the affirmation of the Spirit tonight. Father, for those, and I'd most probably count myself in something of this category, who, who just need to again be reminded that actually the fullness of, of this following you is, is if you love me, you'll obey me. It's, it's living out this, this life of sacrifice and, and other orientation that you have displayed for us and you've called us to. And God, may we receive as sons and daughters tonight the kind correction of a heavenly father who would wanna say there is more, there is more. Don't settle for anything less, there is more. God, I pray that we would receive your correction, even your heavenly discipline tonight, and that we would walk afresh in your ways. God, I wanna pray for that third category of people those who, as we speak of these things, salvation, faith in Christ, receiving you as leader and Lord, even as we spoke about that lady who's become a Christian through lockdown and just the evidence of how real it is in her life because her, her appetites, her desires, her intentions have changed. God, as some people assess and go, I'm not sure I've ever had that. I ask Jesus that tonight would be their moment of salvation. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here, that you are quickening their spirits to surrender, to bow the, the knee before you and say, Jesus, I, I fall short. 
But thank you, you never fell short. Jesus, I, I am in need of a Savior. And thank you that, that you went to the cross. Thank you for the double imputation of your perfect righteousness given to me and my full sinfulness given to you. Thank you, the great exchange is possible. And tonight I reach out my hands towards heaven for the great exchange to take place in my life. Thank you for those who are able to pray that prayer and honesty here tonight. God, may they too, like my mom's friend, experience those early seeds just being watered and fertilized and grown. May they find themselves going from baby steps to more mature steps and into spiritual adulthood in time to come as they hold fast to you and they walk in your ways. We pray, won't you achieve the fullness of your purpose in our one and only lives? In Jesus' beautiful name, amen, amen. Let's stand together. We're gonna sing one last song.